You can take your Bibles and turn back to uh, Hebrews chapter 6 with me this morning. Hebrews chapter 6. It's become uh, a bit of a habit for Marcia and I on Saturday night, if we can, to uh, listen to Christian music of various kinds off of YouTube as in preparation for our own heart and worship uh, on Sunday mornings. And uh, we listened to a number of excellent groups last night and uh, professional singers and different things that were very good. But I tell you, this morning's music and singing was closer, brought my closer in my heart to worship God than in anything we listened to last night. I appreciate uh, those uh, who have participated today. I appreciated the songs. And I hope your heart was lifted up as well. You know, we can read and sing these songs and, and it just floats right over our heads, our minds, or other places. Or we can let them penetrate our hearts and change us. And that's our encouragement always as we come before the Lord to worship Him. In Hebrews chapter 6, uh, we, we look in the context of our own world right now. We realize that there's a lot of things going on and have been going on for a while that causes us to be disappointed and concerned about the things happening in our culture. Uh, we've lost a lot of confidence, haven't we, in our p- political leaders, in our medical world, our scientists, uh, in, uh, even in our uh, everyday life, who fixes our cars and who, who works on our houses and whatever else. There's a lot of, the, the, a big question we have on not so many areas is, who can we trust? Uh, who, who can we really believe in? Who can, who's not lying to us? And that's an issue, I think, on the heart of of most of us. And if that's true on these relatively mundane things, what about the important things of eternal life, the eternal issues of life? Who can we trust uh, to guide us forward? In chapter 6, verse 1, it tells us that we are to uh, uh, move forward to press on to maturity in Christ. But who's going to lead us there? Who's going to press us on? Who's going to lead us in that march to, to maturity in, in the Lord Jesus Christ? The author of Hebrews in this marvelous passage, chapter 6, is talking about those things. He's talking about the fears and questions that we have in life. And he's drawn us to, to a perspective of God and uh, the provisions found in Christ. And as he does so, and I was looking through this passage, and I'm not going to lie to you, this is an intense passage. If uh, you read it today or you listened to Brian as he read it, and if you're looking at it today as we start to delve into it, you're saying, this is, a, this is a tough passage. Can we go on to something else? Uh, this is difficult. And it is intense. It is packed. Almost every word in these verses have significance. And we're going to look at a lot of that even today. But as we do that, I was trying to, as I read it over and over and researched and studied this passage of Scripture, it became clear to me there was two particular words that stood out in this passage, going back to verse 11. The word promise and the word hope. And I'm going to uh, wrap everything around those two words today. I think he's talking about the promise of God and the hope that we find in Christ. And everything that we look at in this intense passage is wrapped around one or two, one of the two words. And we start off with the word promise. In verse 11, he says this, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to uh, realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So here's his goal. He wants you and I to recognize the full assurance of hope until the end, to the end of our lives, until we come before him in eternity. He wants to give us complete confidence in our hope of eternal life, and he wants that to characterize our everyday life. That's his mission. That's what he's after. In verse 12, he said this, I want you to move on from sluggishness 
and be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Don't stay sluggish. Don't stay dull. Don't be insipid. Step up. Move forward. And follow the example of those that have gone before you. We talked about that some last week. So he's going to give us an example of that. And that example is going to be Abraham. And uh, Abraham was one who had, was given the promise and one who lived by that promise. Four different times the word promise shows up. If you're taking note of that, verse 12, verse 13, verse 15, and verse 17. He's talking about the promise. Abraham is his example. So we start with that example as one who obtained the promises. Verse 13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. The scripture then informs us that God came to Abraham when he was an idol worshiper. Do you realize that? If you don't realize that, go to Joshua chapter 24, verse uh, 1 to 3 sometimes. God called Abraham out of a, a place called Ur of the Chaldeas when he was yet a worshiper of idols and false gods. He was not a worshiper of God. God did not go to him because he was a worshiper of him. He goes to him when he was still worshiping idols and false gods. Go back to Genesis chapter 11 and 12 with me. Just at the very end of Genesis chapter 11. We see the, the account, and we'll pick that up in verse 31, Genesis eleven thirty-one. 31. Just a quick part here, Terah, that's the father of Abram, took his son and Lot and others together uh, from Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan, as far as Haran, settled there. And then we go down to verse 12, and here comes the pro- chapter 12, and here comes the promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country. Now keep in mind, he's an idol worshiper. He is not a believer. God shows up. And God says to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse And you and all the families of the earth will be blessed. What a powerful, powerful promise God gives Abraham, even while he was not yet living for him. This promise is going to be uh, repeated in chapter 13, in chapter 15, and chapter 22. The great promise given to Abraham. Now Abraham, when he was in the Ur of the Chaldees, before he ever followed the Lord, had life pretty much set. He had a beautiful wife. He had plenty of money. He was an aristocrat of his time. Uh, He had everything going for him pretty much in life, except he didn't have a son. And he had no son to pass on the heritage, no son to carry on his name. And so when God calls him forward, he gives him a promise that would include a son. He is going to have a son who will will then carry on that name and will carry on that blessing. So that was all part of the promises. But for 25 years... Abraham did not have a son. 25 more years. He's about 75 when this promise was given. He's 100, and he still does not have a son. It's getting kind of old 
for having children. You, you that had kids in your 40s say, man, I can't believe somebody would raise a kid in their hundreds. But that's where he is at. It's 100 years old, no kids. Go to chapter 22. We pick up on the last time God gives this promise. And this is actually the one quoted in Hebrews. This is where Hebrews is quoting from. Chapter 22 and verse uh, 16 and 17 he says this, by myself I have sworn, oh, okay, I, want to, I want to preface this, after 25 years, he's 100 years old, he does have a son. He names that boy Isaac, which means laughter, and so now he does have a son. Then God comes along and says, I want you to go sacrifice that boy. Now that was common in the pagan world. Abraham had probably seen that many times. The true God of the universe would never do that. He would never allow human sacrifice, but Abraham doesn't have the background and understanding we do. And therefore, he simply obeys. And he takes his son up to sacrifice him for the Lord, remembering this is the hope that God has given him, the promise God has given him based upon a son. And God says, go and sacrifice that son. Of course, God rescues that situation. He does not sacrifice his son. But in verse 16 of chapter 22, it says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemy. He's now reiterating that promise because he was faithful to obey his Lord. And this is the passage quoted in chapter 6 of Hebrews. So if we go back to chapter 6, we find that Abraham has been given this great promise, a supernatural promise, that he would have a son. And that son would carry on his lineage, and Abraham believed him. Now here's our question. Why did Abraham believe God? What is the basis of his faith? What is the basis of your faith in my? Why would we believe God when we've been disappointed by almost everybody else in this world? That's the question in front of us. In verse 16... Of chapter 6, we begin to see the basis of his faith. He says this, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is the end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring to even, even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Now let's begin to unpack that. That's a very intense statement. What is he saying? He is saying Abraham had assurance from God on the basis of a couple of things. Number one, he, God had given him a promise, God, and God sealed that promise with an oath. God made that promise with an oath. Now oaths were, were common in Scripture. Uh, the most common oath given by the, in the Old Testament people, was, was this, as the Lord lives. It's quite often that someone say, as the Lord lives, such and such is the case. Uh, Abraham himself made a number of oaths uh, and promises to various people. Uh, you know, in, our, in our country, it wasn't too long ago, a, few, a couple, three generations ago, when people would often say that uh, they, they didn't write contracts, they would simply say, my word is my bond. Remember hearing that on TV maybe? My word is my bond. That was the cliche. If you were a little more shaky in character, they made you swear by your mother's grave or something like that. 
But uh, those kinds of, we don't do that anymore because nobody cares about their mother's grave, I don't guess. And so we make them sign contracts. Uh, but in ancient times, that, these oaths were very common. Uh, there's only two occasions in all the scriptures when God said he made an oath. This one here, and also when, it, when Deuteronomy 3, chapter 1, when the people were right at the threshold of going into the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, and God made an oath that they would not enter his land because of their disobedience. And so, uh, we have some understanding of how this works with people. But why did God take an oath? Why would he do that? That's a good question. Have you ever thought about that? I think purely to accommodate us. He didn't need to take an oath. He did it for Abraham. He does it for us. Purely to accommodate us. You parents that have toddlers or have had toddlers. And you're trying to feed that little fella those strained peas that come out of the Gerber bottle. You know? And the little child is resisting. And so the parent says, look, I'll take a bite to show you how good they are. And then you try not to make a face, right? Because they're awful. Absolutely awful. None of you go out and buy that stuff for yourself. But you make your poor kids eat it. But that's, that's a whole other thing. So you do it for the kid. You want them to see that it's okay. You're accommodating. God's accommodating Abraham here. In verse 17, it says, in the same way, God desiring even more to show us the to the heirs of promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So God is making an oath, but it's based upon the unchangeableness, not only of the oath, but the unchangeableness of himself. The word interposed here would be better translated guaranteed. You might jot that down in your Bible. Most translations today translate it guaranteed. He guaranteed with an oath, something he said to Abraham. Oh, we, we know warranties, right? We have warranties with our cars. You know, last time I bought a new car, I wasn't out of the parking lot before I started getting emails. Your warranty is about to expire. <laughs> and you need to buy a new warranty now. You have to. And then there's such thing as limited warranties. You get those when you buy a used car or whatever. What is a limited warranty? A limited warranty means that they will fix anything on your car except what is actually broken. It's limited, right? Well, God's guarantee is not limited. It's an unlimited warranty. Absolutely unlimited. Everything is covered. And he speaks here then, in verse 18, he says, there are the two unchangeable things. Here's the two unchangeable things. It's impossible for God to lie. And secondly, he says, we have taken refuge with him have strong encouragement to hold the hope that is set before us. There's two unchangeable things here. God cannot lie and God's nature. That's the two unchangeable things. The word unchangeable means it is found in both 17 and 18. The word unchangeable means not a turncoat, not a traitor. The best known traitor, I think, in our American history is Benedict Arnold. If you go back and read Benedict Arnold's story, you find that originally he was a very good general perhaps one of our best generals during the Revolutionary War. But he got very disappointed in, uh, in those over him, his leadership, to the point that finally he decided to, uh, to turn on America and become a traitor. His disappointment led him to become a traitor. 
if it's possible for a man as good as Benedict Arnold be, to become a turncoat, then why wouldn't God become a turncoat on us? That's his argument. Because God cannot change and God cannot lie. Some years ago, Phil Yancey wrote a book called Disappointment with God. Yancey's one of those authors, if you read him, where you'll find a really mixed bag here. He, uh, he has some very insightful things in his writings, and then he falls completely off the wall, off the table sometimes. So you have to read him with great discernment. When this book came out, it might have been the most popular book he ever wrote. Probably sold more copies of this book than any book he ever wrote. I was completely turned off immediately by the title, Disappointment with God. Now, I know it was a shock factor, and I know he's trying to get attention, but my friends, you cannot be disappointed with God. That is a non-starter. That is impossible. And I know many people think they are disappointed with God. I know many people are angry with God. God hasn't come through with the goodies they expected, and so they're disappointed. The prosperity gospel is not the gospel most evangelicals actually espouse, but it's infiltrated a vast hunk of evangelicalism in its, in its overall essence, which means that most people think that if they, if they do it right, if they do things that they ought to be doing, God is obligated to give them what they think they want. And if he doesn't, they're disappointed with God. They're angry at God. God failed them in some way. Now let me say this. If you ever come to the place where you think you're disappointed with God, let me say this. One of you are wrong, and it's not God. There's something wrong with your heart. The moment you start getting angry at God, the moment you start blaming God, the moment you're disappointed with God, you better go back and look deep because something has gone haywire in your heart. God cannot disappoint. And that is what he's saying. But here's this. We can disappoint God. Right? God can be disappointed with us. And so we might begin to think, well, what happens if God gets fed up with my fickleness? If God gets fed up with my inconsistencies and my failures, and God looks at me and says, okay, I'm done with you. I'm through with you. You've gone too far this time. God has every right to do that, and he would be right to do so, because we all disappoint God all the time, don't we? Uh, we probably, most of us have disappointed God in some way already this morning, and it's early. People ask me when I come into church, how are you doing? I said, doing great, but it's early, you know? <laughs> we disappoint God. Could God say, okay, enough? You've disappointed me too much, too often, I'm done. He could, but here's the promise of God, given by his unchangeable nature and by his oath that God will never let us go. And the reason he does that has everything to do with him and nothing to do with us. Look at verse 18 again. So that by two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie. God has made a promise. He will not renege. I promise you that you're mine and nothing can change that. The unchangeable nature of God is the key. The theological word for the day, for those that need a theological word, is immutability. 
If you don't know what that means, it just means you can't, God can't change. Nothing can change. Do you know of anything in life that doesn't change? You're not even the same person you were yesterday. There's nothing in life that doesn't change. Everything changes. We have no reference point for something that does not change, except the Word of God that says, I will not change. Nothing changes. It's, it's said well in chapter 13, verse 8, when Jesus said, I'm, he, we say of Jesus, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot change. He will not change. It's immutable. And therefore, nothing, we can never lose that which he's promised to give us. And so that's the first thing he wants to talk about. He wants us in verse 11 to have the full assurance of hope. So here's our context. He wants us to know not that, remember going back to the first part of chapter 6, he's not trying to, to shake our faith. He's not trying to say to us, you, you, you'll never be sure you're saved. He's saying to us, I want you to know that you have, can have full assurance of faith, full assurance of hope, based not upon you, but on the unchangeable nature of God, who has given us his promise. And that leads us to our second word, the word hope. Hope is found, if you look at our text, in verse 11, verse 18, verse 19, twice, once implied. Now, why does he say this to us? The author wants to tell us this. You can have hope based upon the unchangeable nature of God if you meet certain conditions. What are those conditions? Verse 18, he says, we who have taken refuge which have strong encouragement to take hope, hold of the hope set before us. Here are two conditions that he's laying out for us. Number one, we have fled for refuge. Now, in the, I'm quoting now the ESV, which I think says it really well. Instead of taken, it uses the word fled. So those who have fled for refuge to God have met the first condition. What are, we, what are we fleeing from? It doesn't say here directly, but we're fleeing from that which would keep us from God. What keeps us from God? Because the whole context of the book of Hebrews is how can we draw near to God? So what, is, what keeps us from God? Sin. Sin is the great deluder. Sin is the great deceiver. Sin it, it comes into our lives, it floods our hearts and our minds with all sorts of, of things, and, and therefore it keeps us from God, and, the, and we must flee from sin and come to the only refuge there is from sin, both now and eternally, and that is the refuge of God himself. So they flee from the, the, the chasing of sin after us, the, the power of sin in our lives. About a hundred years ago, somebody wrote a poem, some of you have read, called The Hound of Heaven. It was a very long poem, and I'm not going to bore you with the whole part of that, but, but uh, here, here is what the person was saying, a person who's running from God. And they wrote, after coming to the Lord, they write this long poem, and here's how it starts. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the Leviathan ways. Of my own mind, and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. Later he says, From those strong feet that, that followed, followed after, but with unhurried chaste and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, 
who betrayeth me. Throughout this long poem, the hound of heaven, as he's talking about God, is going after this person who is fleeing away from the only hope that they have in life. I want you to think about that for a moment. If you want to read that poem sometime, you can try that. But I want to think about for a moment the vast majority of human beings on this planet are fleeing from the one thing that they need most. They're fleeing from the only hope that they have. They're fleeing from God himself. The only hope that is there. What a sad, sad thing to consider. But these people not only have fled from sin, they have also taken hope in God. They fled to God. At the end of verse 18, he says they have taken hold of the hope set before us. Those who have fled from sin are now fleeing to God, and there they find their hope. I think maybe, now you might might go back and look at this later, in in Numbers chapter 35, there's something there that the Jewish believers he's writing to would know very well that many of us might not. And that is the whole subject of the cities of refuge found back in the Old Testament. In the ancient times, if you killed somebody accidentally, or on purpose, uh, you, the avenger of blood, a blood relative, had every right legally to chase you down and kill you. And nobody would stop that. And therefore, God set up what he called cities of refuge on both sides of the Jordan River. And in those cities of refuge, when a person killed somebody, they fled to one of those cities. And so they fled from whom? The adventure of blood. They fled to what? The city of refuge. In the city of refuge, uh, no one could touch them. They They were completely off base. Nobody could touch them until they went to trial to see if they were guilty. The city of refuge. And so he uses that word refuge as an unusual word in the New Testament. I think maybe that's what he has in mind. Take a picture, an object lesson. The Old Testament people fled from the avenger of blood, the one that wanted to destroy them, and fled to the one who could rescue them. And therefore, those are the conditions that we must meet to find this hope. We have fled from sin. We have fled to the one, only one who can give us hope. Now, having said all of that, there's so much more that we need to kind of draw apart on and lasso here. There's a number of wonderful things that show the significance of this hope. And I want to pull those together in five different things here. Five different pieces that tell us the significance of the hope that we have in the Lord. Number one, this hope gives us security in Christ. And that's been the context. That's not any particular verse. That's the whole context that he's giving us in this passage of Scripture. If we have hope in Christ, we need never worry about our eternal destiny. We are secure in Him, and nothing can shake us from that. Nothing can enter the the city of refuge and pull us out of the love of God. We're secure totally in Him, and that's because of Him. John MacArthur says it well, our security is not in our never letting go of God, but of His never letting go of us. That's the answer. He will not let us go. We could let ourselves go, 
But he can never let us go, and therefore we're totally secure in him. Number two, when we have this hope, we have an anchor for the soul. Totally unique section of scripture. The word anchor used as a metaphor in this regard is a word, a word used often in, in antiquity in other writings, but only once in the New Testament, and that's right here. Soul is a word that speaks of our entirety of our lives, not just our spiritual nature, but all of us. And so as he says here, we have the anchor for the soul. He is speaking of an anchor that, that keeps us secure in him, and keeps us in the hope of that anchor our whole life long. Therefore, we need not drift. You know, I think most people are drifting in life. Most people are struggling to find any kind of stability. When The Purpose Driven Life came out by Rick Warren a number of years ago, he sold 25, 30 million copies. It wasn't even a good book. Why did so many people, unsaved people and Christian people, Chase after that idea of purpose because so few people have purpose. So few people know who they are. So few people know where they're going. So few people know what to do when they get there. So few people are drifting, in, so many people are drifting in their lives. They have no stability whatsoever. And yet we are told here we have an anchor for the soul. And there's only one anchor. For that soul. The hymn writer, and we're going to close with this song in a moment, the old hymn, said it this way We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. I think he captured the meaning there. So, what is your anchor in life? Could I ask you that? What, what is it that, that is your anchor when life gets shaky, when things get tough? When, uh, when your, your world comes crashing in, when life really turns on you, what is your anchor? According to this passage, there's only one such anchor. And that anchor is found right here in Christ, in the hope of Christ. That is the only anchor you have. Everything else will ultimately let you down and you will sink. Is your anchor your job security? Is your anchor your finances? Is your anchor your family and friends? What is your anchor in life? Anything short of Jesus Christ, your anchor to the wrong thing. Now let me give you a quote from one of the great theologians of our time, Jim Carrey. <laughs> if you don't know who Jim Carrey is, you're probably fortunate, but nevertheless. Here he said this. Now listen to this from Jim Carrey, who I have no knowledge whatsoever he knows Christ. He says, I hope everybody, somebody sent this to me this week. I, have, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so that they know that it is not the answer. You get that? You can pull up those kind of quotes from celebrities all over the planet. But very few take the next step when they come to the end of their anchor the end of the rope, and they have no place else to go, very few finally turn to the only anchor there is, Jesus Christ. The Lord has chased them to the place where they realize everything they've ever lived for is a waste. And yet they don't turn to Him for the most part. The Lord is saying, here's the anchor. 
Don't, don't let these things push you to the place of knowing there's no stability in life, but I'm not going to go after the one thing that gives me hope. So that's the second thing. Here's the third thing. This anchor is sure and steadfast. Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both the hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. He says the hope is both sure and steadfast. Sure means uh, it will never totter. It will never sink. We all know when the Titanic set sail, they said it was the unsinkable Titanic. The Bismarck battleship was supposed to be unsinkable. Both of them are at the bottom of the ocean, along with 10,000 other ships, many of them they thought was unsinkable. Whatever we place our hope in in this life is sinkable. It is not sure, but the, but the sure, our confidence is in the sure anchor of Christ. And then it's steadfast. Steadfast means that it cannot buckle. No matter what pressure you put on it, no matter how much weight is there, it cannot buckle. This hope is unbuckable. Is that a word? I'm not sure. But it will not buckle. It is a hope that is sure. It is a hope that is steadfast. There is no other hope like this. In all of life, in all eternity, in all the universe, and this is the only hope that is sure and steadfast. Number four, it's an, it's an anchor that enters within the veil. And this gets very unique here. No other place talks about, in all the New Testaments, talks about it quite like this. And so we need to grasp what he's saying. The anchor's value is only as good as it is as to what it's attached to. Have you ever been in a boat? It seems like I did this once, but I can't remember. I dreamed it. I don't know. But you've been in a boat on a lake, and you want to anchor your little boat somewhere. So you take the little anchor, and you throw it out to anchor it, but you forgot to tie it to the boat. <laughs> I know people have done that. I may have done it. I can't remember now. But what, it's a waste. If, you, if it's not tethered to the boat, all you've done is thrown your anchor away. And so the anchor that we have has to be tethered to something. What is it tethered to? Well, the metaphor here has Christ as the anchor of hope. But that anchor is an anchor that also it says in this verse, it enters within the veil. Now we're going back to the Jewish thinking. So you've got to get the Jewish thinking here. In the Old Testament, they had the, the ta- temple or the tabernacle. And in the most holy part of that tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. Now, we've gone through this many times, but stay with me. Uh, once a year, and only once a year, the high priest, and only the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies to have, to have atonement for the sins of the people. They called that the Day of Atonement. And he went in, the, in there, and he did his thing. He didn't stay very long, because he now is in the very presence of God, and he didn't linger. And he came back out and he was finished. But nobody else ever went inside that Holy of Holies. Only the high priest ever did that. Now, let's go back to our passage. Jesus, in this picture, has entered within the Holy of Holies. But not the tabernacle on earth. The Holy of Holies in heaven. We learn from chapter 1 verse 3. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's he's in the Holy of Holies at the right hand of the Father and he has taken your anchor with him. 
Your anchor is secured to Christ who is on the throne next to the Father. That's where your anchor is. Now that's security. But there's even something better. You ready? Verse 20. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Not The word forerunner means trailblazer. There's one thing that the high priest could never do. The high priest could go once a year into the Holy of Holies and do his thing. And then he came out. The high priest never pulled back the curtain to show anybody else what's in there. They weren't to look. And he never invited anybody to join him. They couldn't come in. But the Lord, in the Holy of Holies, setting seated on the throne of God at the right hand, invites us to come within the veil. The picture is this. He is there in the Holy of Holies. We're anchored to him, and he pulls the curtain back, and he says, join me. Join me. Draw near to me, one of the great themes of the book of Hebrews. You can now draw near to God Because our anchor is secure in Christ who has saved us. Nothing ever happened in history like that. And now we have direct access to God. And then he finishes it up by saying, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now you may not be excited about that, but he is. He'd been wanting to talk about Melchizedek since chapter 5 verse 11. And he keeps getting sidetracked, you know, kind of like me when I'm preaching. He keeps getting sidetracked. But there is where he wants to go. And here's why. Everything he's been telling us here are things already done for us. Now, in, with, the, with the priesthood of Christ, after the order of Melchizedek, he's going to tell us what Christ is doing for us now. See, it gets better and better and better. And he's, he can hardly wait to get there, but we're going to have to wait till next time. I read an account in a book recently of a, of a man who said his grandparents won the Oregon lottery, three and a half million dollars. He was 10 years old. He came home and the family was so excited. He thought at first they were excited to see him, but they weren't. They were excited. They had a 10, three and a half million dollars. Uh, they use that money to pay off debts. They use that money for tuitions. They use that money for vacations for the whole family. But the dark side was that money became a real problem for the family. Bickering started. Divisions started. Grandma and Grandpa had been married 50 years, got divorced in the process. They had been given a wonderful blessing that they did not know how to handle. You've been given wonderful blessings that we've looked at today. And I'm going to summarize them in a second. You've been given wonderful blessings. Are you handling them as God would have you handle them? The Duke of, Duke of Windsor said his father, King George V, told him every day of his life, never forget who you are. The king going to be the king, right? But here's a better thing for Christians. Never forget whose you are. It's not about you. It's about him. Who do you belong to? Consider then this intense passage. We've gone through some heavy stuff. For all six of you that stayed awake, bless you. (laughs) This is some of the heaviest stuff in all the Word of God. It's intense, but it is full, and it's full of blessing. 
So I want to summarize very quickly six things you should go home with today, praising the Lord. Very quickly, number one, we have a God who will never disappoint. Everything in life disappoints, including you. But God never does. We, secondly, we have a God who will never change. Everything in life changes, but God never changes. He is immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God Abraham worshiped is the God we worship. The God that we worship is the God we'll worship for all eternity. He'll never change. Thirdly, we have a God who will never renege on his promises. Wow. Anybody else could, but God never will. And he's promised that because of his nature, who he is, and on the basis of his oath. Number four, shifting to the Savior. We have a Savior to which our hope is anchored. All all of our hope rests in being anchored in Christ. There is no hope if our anchor is not in him. We are hopeless people, both now and forevermore. Number five. We have a Savior who is seated in the holy place at the right hand of the Father. That is where He is. He's already ruling and reigning. And we are anchored to Him and we're anchored to that throne. And number six, we have a Savior who invites us to join Him. Curtains are pulled back. We're invited on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us to join Him forevermore. Fleeing from sin, fleeing to Him He's our hope, all based upon the promise and the nature of God. And all I can say is hallelujah, what a Savior.